This morning we move into the last chapter of Paul's letter to the Philippians. And you can find that text in your bulletin there on page 982 of those uh, shiny new black Bibles that are in front of you there. And we think about humility and unity and courage, uh, joy in the Lord. These are all major themes uh, in Paul's writing to the Philippians. That even in his own very difficult circumstances, uh, his focus is on Christ. Uh, the proclamation of the gospel, a gospel that he cherishes uh, so much. So now in this home stretch of chapter 4, before he goes back and hits that theme of joy uh, once more, uh, he's going to exercise some shepherding care in the life of the church. Um, I mean, let's, let's not forget how personal this letter is. He knows the church. He knows the people in the church. They've worshipped together. They've served together. Um, he has shed tears over their uh, journey in the Lord, and they've learned from him. So he addresses them uh, very specifically here. We're going to read just verses 2 and 3 of chapter 4, uh, and I'll make reference to the closing verses of the letter as well. Philippians 4, beginning at verse 2. I entreat Eodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Lord God, may the meditation of our hearts, the words of my mouth, be pleasing and acceptable to you. Lord, we need your help this morning. Come, Holy Spirit, and teach us. Encourage us, admonish us, guide us into all truth. We thank you for this word, Lord. and pray that you would use this word in our hearts and in our lives, that we might grow in grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus, a deeper love for the Lord Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, two names you're probably familiar with. Um, John Adams, the second president of the United States, Thomas Jefferson was his vice president until becoming the third president of the United States. And these men worked together, uh, really, in, in committing themselves to the forming of the nation, both signers of the Declaration, and this, uh, this vision that they had, this commitment that they had made, really strengthened uh, their friendship. And then over time, after a few personal slights, landing in different positions politically, each sort of attacking the other. These two men, who were such good friends, so committed to the cause of forming the nation, no longer spoke to each other. They no longer sent correspondence. In fact, they, they sort of considered themselves enemies after they had both been, been president. You say, well, how does this happen? Guys who are so committed to the cause can part ways in such a divisive and sort of mean-spirited way. I think it's a good question. And it's a, a question that we can ask of ourselves and those who share life with us in the church. Why is it so hard to get along with others sometimes? I mean, can't we all just get along? I love Jesus, you love Jesus. We're a family in Jesus. I mean, this shouldn't happen, right? Um, but it does. Division, 
disagreement, you know, that doesn't just stop when you become a Christian. Uh, you join the body of Christ. Our sin-scarred nature remains and, and our pride and our selfishness and our, our jealousy. We tend to clench our teeth. Other times, just difference in personality. There are obstacles to growth and agreement on a, a course to take in the life of the church. Now, by the Spirit of God, this is not insurmountable, but even the most committed servants of Christ, uh, they can, times can end in conflict uh, with each other. Think of the giants of, you know, giant reformers like Calvin and Luther, or uh, George Whitfield, John Wesley, such good friends working together, but then parting ways after a time. Uh, and we see that here in the Philippian church. Um, it's been the back of Paul's mind the whole time as he's writing this letter. He's been building the case for humility and unity in the church. Now it's time to actually bring out this concern. He's urging these two women to be reconciled, to come together uh, in unity uh, as those who are in the Lord. And I think his approach is very instructive for us. He really shows his heart and concern for the church in these words. Even at a great distance, he is a shepherd uh, to the flock. So there are three things that we see from Paul uh, that we can learn as a family of God when we may not always agree. Um, we find that he challenges those who are in disunity. He engages with the appropriate help and he affirms their position as fellow workers. Challenges, engages, and affirms. Um, some wonderful insight here into the character of Paul. We don't know who these two women were, Iodia and Syntyche, but it appears that in this region of Philippi, in Macedonia, that uh, women did play a larger role in the, the public arena, in the civic life of the people. Uh, so these, these women would have been very well known uh, in the church, likely qu- quite influential in the life of the church. But notice how Paul addresses them. He urges, he pleads with them to be reconciled to one another in the Lord. Now this is the Apostle Paul. If anyone could have said, okay ladies, enough is enough. He sort of put his foot down and said, this is ridiculous. It would have been the Apostle Paul. But he doesn't do that. He pleads with them. Almost, almost begs in a very respectful way. Paul's desire is that they would model what he's already encouraged the church to in chapter 2, verse 2. Be of the same mind. To be unified in purpose. Like what one commentator says, to think on the same page. This issue, whatever the issue was in the church, it was serious enough for Paul to mention them by name. He normally doesn't do this in a letter that's going to be read publicly before the church. Uh, So it's important that these women be uh, reconciled uh, in devotion to the Lord. Now, did you notice whose side Paul took? He didn't take either side. Or maybe better said, he took both of their sides in this disagreement. It didn't matter who said what last. They both had responsibility to this relationship, to the repair of this relationship. John Adams and Thomas Jefferson both had a mutual friend uh, in Dr. Benjamin Rush. He was also a signer of the Declaration, became very uh, influential in Philadelphia um, as, a, as a professor and as a doctor. Well, after these men had been president, Dr. Rush had a dream 
that both Adams and Jefferson began to send letters back and forth to each other again. And after this dream, Dr. Rush wrote out a copy of it and he sent it to both men. Just saying, here's what I dreamed. And left it at that. Um, Be reconciled in the Lord, Paul says. Um, It is for the Lord's sake. Not even for your own sake or or the church's sake, but for the glory of Christ. It's Jesus that they share. It's Jesus that has brought them together in the church. So they can press on and be reconciled in Jesus. Remember Paul's words to the Ephesians in chapter 2. Christ has created in himself a new man of, of all men, Jew and Gentile, reconciling both to God in one body through the cross, killing the hostility. My rebellion... And hostility against God is shattered by the cross of Christ. Where God's love for me, God's justice over my sin collide. And the peace that I I need, the peace that I most long for, is given. If God has done that for me, if He's done that for you, moving us from hostility to love and praise and wonder, how can we continue? Continue in division, in hostility with one another. We are in the Lord. We have every motivation and and power in the Spirit to be reconciled. Um, Paul challenges, he urges the church to this. Are we willing to do this as a church? Um, To address concerns and divisions as they arise? I mean, it's not easy. Um, Especially when we feel like we have been legitimately attacked or sinned against. Can we know the easy thing? The easy thing to do is to keep it out of whisper or maybe talk to those who are our closest friends or those who we know will take our side or maybe we just hope it blows over. It's not natural for us. It is a supernatural thing, supernatural work to forgive and to pursue one another in Christ. We need need to address and, and challenge in humility and grace. At least get the conversation started. Not out of pride, not out of our our own self-protection. Not even that Trinity Fellowship Church would look a certain way. But that the name of Christ would be exalted. That the church of Christ would be unified. See, Trinity Fellowship Church isn't my church. Trinity Fellowship Church isn't your church. Whether you've been here five days or 50 years. We identify ourselves with this local representation of something much bigger. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's His. He owns it. He determines what is best for it and how to use it. I think of so many issues and, and, and problems that arise in the church we would go away if we, if we truly believe this, that the church belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. and We are in Him. And I think of how strong... Um, the strong connection between personal preference and ownership. Um, We own the things that we like. We own the things that we want. We own the things that work the way that we want them to work, right? So when that that sense of ownership starts to creep into the church, when something happens or, or changes that runs against preference, we go, whoa, what's going on here in my church? 
And our personal preference is fine and good and given by God, but needs to be held lightly in the life of the church, or at least framed in that larger picture of ownership and what we are about as a church, bound together uh, in Christ. Here's where it's important also that we uh, guard our own hearts. It always seems to come back to that. Do you know yourself well enough and the temptations that live in you that you are more susceptible to that would cause division in your family or in the larger family of God? You may have a certain area of study. You may have a certain interest. Maybe a goal for yourself or something that you have sacrificed a great deal for in the past. Know where you're going to be pulled. Think about how to communicate with those who may not share that passion for that thing um, or may not be pulled in that specific direction. Every, every one of us is so different in this. It takes great wisdom and discernment to be able to communicate and pursue unity with all different kinds of folks. Um, a willingness to listen, a willingness to compromise. I need a lot of help in this. Um, I think the church in general needs help with this. And that's where Paul goes next. He challenges these women to agree in the Lord and then engages them with a mediator. We don't know who this yoke fellow or this true companion was, but it was someone that Paul knew very well, someone he trusted, and Paul trusted his maturity and capability enough to come alongside these women and be a unifying force. Eudia and Syntyche, they have fought side by side in spreading the gospel they're examples in the church, it would seem, so that there's a sense of urgency behind this. Okay, ladies, work this out, and now here's, here's someone else uh, to help. Um, Paul doesn't do ministry in a vacuum. We've seen that by now, so it shouldn't surprise us um, that he uh, encourages this. Calls on a friend to engage, uh, to mediate the situation. Good counselors do this. They know how to... They're often trained and practiced in how to, to mediate, usually by asking good questions of those who are in dispute, maybe reframing what one person says to, to the other so it's more uh, clearly understood. It takes practice. Um, it's a tremendous value uh, in the life of the church. And here, here's just a little nuanced application. Um, we can all use good counseling. We all need good counseling. Uh, to battle individual sin patterns in our marriages and our families, to be reconciled to family members, to navigate relationships either presently or potentially. Okay, we don't see near enough counseling in the life of the church um, because we think we don't have any real issues or the issues aren't big enough to require counseling. Um, and that's a devious lie. Satan will feed you that one all day long. You know, it's, don't, don't worry about it. It'll blow over. She'll get over it. He'll get over it. It's a phase that they're going through. Nobody else knows. Um, we can all benefit from the help and mediation of another. The Spirit of God is our great counselor, uh, convicting our conscience and redirecting us in the way that we should go, working through the Word and graciously working through the engagement of others. So we have fellow workers who come alongside us when things seem out of line. Um, this is the beauty of, of healthy and redeeming discipline in the church. 
And we, I know we don't often think of discipline as a beautiful thing uh, in our families or in the church. Because so often we see it uh, abused or twisted. But it is beautiful in our homes and in the church. Uh, when it's done a spirit of love uh, and humility. And then this discipline weaves its way into the fabric of the church. Um, just with everyday conversations. Um, everyday interest in one another's lives. Um, you know, how you doing, John? How things go this week? Uh, how are the relationships in the family? And then maybe in a, in a more private conversation, you know, John, how are you and Tamara, how are you, how's your marriage? Anything that's tripping you guys up now? Things, areas you like to grow? Um, now, their marriage is great. I'm just using them as an example because they're sitting in front. Right? You guys have a great marriage, right? Okay, good. Um, See, when those conversations are happening, when we have the courage in Christ, we're confident enough in our gospel identity to speak honestly with one another, then when sin invades our lives personally, when it invades our marriage, our families, then it doesn't seem out of whack when someone in your, your community group or an elder gives you a call or stops you downstairs and says, hey, I've been praying for you, what's going on? How can I help you with this? doesn't seem so strange. Um, God gives us these examples. It's the officers in the church should be taking the lead in this. You know, they're the first to repent, the first to seek reconciliation and to offer mediation uh, when necessary. And Jesus gives instruction to his disciples uh, in Matthew 18 about doing life as a disciple, discipline in the church. Are you offended by a brother or sister? been sinned against, and go to them. Have you sinned against a brother or sister? Go to them. If, if they refuse to listen, if they're combative, then take another brother or sister with you and address them. Um, it's a beautiful process uh, in the life and health of the church. So the elder calls you and wants to talk about how you're doing, how you're doing in, in your faith journey, in your walk with the Lord. He's, they're not doing that with this hammer of shame, just waiting. Aha, caught you. That's not, that's not what they're doing. They love you. They, they care for you. And they're accountable to God uh, as those keeping watch over your soul. So we should anticipate this and we can be thankful for this in uh, the life of the church as the grace of God. So Paul's thankful for Iodia and Syntyche. Uh, he's thankful for his friend in the church who he, who he asked to, to come and help for Clement and all these fellow workers. And he affirms this in his writing. He says they are in the Lord. They have labored side by side with Him. And their names are in the book of life. The record book. Um, all those looking forward to future glory. A record that will be opened by the judge himself on that great day. Revelation chapter 3 the church hears from the Spirit of Christ. The one who conquers will be clothed in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus is, is met by some very excited disciples. You know, he had sent them out to, to perform miracles in his name. And they get back and said, Jesus, you're not going to believe this. People are, are listening to us in your, in your name. And Jesus says, yes, there's great power here, but don't rejoice 
that these spirits are listening to you. That's not the end game. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That is what matters. That's the end game. So Paul says that that these in the church have their names written in the book of life. Um, They're not in agreement right now. There's division. But look at the big picture. Look at what is true. They are chosen of God, called to His eternal kingdom in Christ. And let's take this division, this this disagreement, and overlay it with that reality. I mean, you've heard the phrase, you know, don't sweat the small stuff, right? Now, Paul didn't write that. The small stuff is still part of life. But don't sweat the small stuff when the big picture is golden. Your name is in the book of life. What are the tiffs and conflicts in light of that? We read that the last soldier to die in World War I, it was an American private. He was with a unit in France, and his unit had come up against a German um, barricade, and the armistice had already been signed. It was going to take effect, like in the next hour. And the, the Germans knew about this, and uh, the sergeant knew about this, and so this young private began to charge the German line with his bayonet against the wishes of the sergeant, saying, what are you doing? Get back here! And the Germans on behind the guns are saying are waving at him, saying, No. But he just keeps on coming. Until finally they had to shoot. And so he dropped, and there's just silence. There's no other shots. Because they knew that this war was over. He didn't have to die that day. It was, it was not a battle for him to fight in light of the bigger picture. Do we pick needless battles in our families or in the church? Is this division or argument worth having in light of eternity? The great battle has already been won in Christ. Our names are written in the book of life, sealed by the blood of Jesus. There's no greater privilege, no higher ambition than have your name there in that record. Eternity is coming. What bearing does that have on how we see conflict? So it's in this affirmation Their names are written in the book of life that we can settle disputes and pursue reconciliation in the church by the Spirit of God in us. We can affirm the image of God in all people, but particularly in our brothers and sisters in Christ. We may not see eye to eye in everything. We won't. We know that. We have a greater hope, a greater bond in Christ. It enables us to love now in a way... That, that may very well awaken an interest in the gospel uh, from those who have never seen this before, who have never experienced this type of honest, sacrificial pursuit of one another. Um, so Paul closes, closes his letter in, in affirming the bond that the Philippians have with the church. He says they're, they're among fellow believers. This would encourage them. It would, it would let them know that they are not alone. They're among the saints all over the place. And even Paul's message has made its way now to the the upper echelon of society. We see in in verse 22 at the end of the letter. By the grace of God, the number of saints is growing. The church can stand firm. They can pursue unity because they have the same goal of restoration in the life to come. Dr. Benjamin Rush didn't give up on John Adams or Thomas Jefferson. He started to 
poke at Jefferson a little bit more. And so Jefferson did finally send a letter to John Adams, to which John Adams replied, sort of a, a hesitant, guarded, short letter. But then Jefferson responded. And then Adams responded. And they went back and forth. Until finally, John Adams writes to Jefferson and he says, you know what, we can keep sending letters all day long. Um, but there's what he said, you and I ought not to die before we have explained ourselves to each other. So these two friends, enemies, are now brought back together. These two men died within three hours of each other on July 4th, 1826. Fifty years after they signed the Declaration, they die within three hours. Reconciled. God is redeeming His bride. He calls us to Himself. He pursues us to return that we might, might be forgiven. He uses His bride, the church, to call people back to Himself. To be reconciled to God. To walk in obedience to this law of love and pursue a life of peace with each other. So may God grant us the courage and the humility to challenge to engage and to affirm one another in the body of Christ, all for His glory. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank You for this Word, even though it's not so much uh, doesn't encourage us as much as some other passages might. But Lord, we need to hear this Word from You. You are a gracious and tender shepherd. How you have shepherded through the apostle in your early church. How you shepherd us, Lord, in your church. May we love one another well, pursue each other in, in reconciliation, being accountable to one another in honesty. Lord, we need your help in this. It's not natural to us. Work in us, we pray. We thank you that you do not leave us on our own. Our names are written in the book of life as we rest upon you. In Jesus' name, amen.